You may open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, although I'll be showing you some scriptures before we actually look at that passage of scripture from your Bibles. I want to, by God's leading, take up Paul's first preaching trip today, and if he continues to lead, to look at trips two, three, and four in the following Sundays. I hope that you can be thankful and embrace and rejoice and exceedingly rejoice as our brother David just read from Psalm 68 for the huge event of giving the word to Gentiles. He had left us for 4,000 years and winked at our terrible ignorance and the idiocy and superstition of our idolatry, but then he sent the truth to us and prepared us for it, opening the hearts of Lydia and many others and sending men like Paul and those that came after him. But let's look at some scriptures about this great event of the gospel coming to us and how important it is. I have prayed for you to be gripped by the choice God made not to leave you to yourself. You could never know God's Son Jesus Christ, or all the blessings in him, unless God sent a preacher, cannot know it. The creation doesn't show it. His providence doesn't show it. Your conscience doesn't reveal it. You would not know that God had a son, and all spiritual blessings are in that son, unless God sent a preacher. Psalm 147, verse 19, He showeth his word unto Jacob, and his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation, including us, before the cross. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. God was very discriminating, very selective, and only showed his truth to the little tiny nation of Israel and gave his word, his statutes, and his judgments to them. Acts 17 and verse 30 is from last Sunday. And the times of this Gentile ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. He overlooked it and left us in our ignorance for 4,000 years, but through the apostles commanded Gentiles to repent. And today we'll run into this verse, very similar. Who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. All nations, except Israel, he let them walk in their own ways. The Egyptians could have their abominable idolatries. The Babylonians could have theirs. The Romans could have theirs. He suffered them. He allowed it. He permitted it to walk in their ways. But then the gospel came and charged us to worship him, the creator, the true and living God. Romans 10, verses 13 through 15. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. A person that professes the Lord Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior is showing the evidence of God's work of grace in him, and he lays hold of eternal life that way to know that he is justified from his sins. Verse 14, how then, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How can you call on a person that you haven't believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? If God had left you to yourself without a preacher, and we're starting with Paul today, not your pastor, but Paul Where would you be? How shall they preach except they be sent? These are four questions that unless God intervenes, you are in serious trouble. This how is different. This how is a statement, and look at how it ends. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. What a difference. How would you ever call on him you haven't believed? How would you believe without hearing? How would you hear without a preacher? And how would they preach unless God sent them? The Apostle Paul, 
first known as Saul of Tarsus, was not going to preach Jesus Christ. He did everything against Jesus Christ, but God sent him. And we're going to read about that first sending of Paul to Gentiles in Acts 13. 1 Timothy 3.16, also from last Sunday, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Six statements of our faith. Thank you, Lord, for sending the word to us Gentiles. Jesus gathered his 11 apostles together before he left this earth in Matthew 28 and verse 18 and came and spake unto them saying, all power, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I'm ascending up far above all heavens and I have all power. Go ye therefore. Apostles, go based on my power and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Amen. All power. Jesus sent those apostles out with power. And he said this to them before he left. Ye shall receive power. Those apostles were going to get power. They weren't very powerful men before Acts chapter 1. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, starting in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth, which is what we'll see in Acts chapter 13. And here it is, the first two verses of Acts 13. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, certain prophets and teachers. And we have five of them listed, and the first and the last are the ones that count, Barnabas, and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me. Give me two of your five, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And we're going to read in Acts 13, Paul's going to say these words to the crowd of assembled Jews and Gentiles in Acts 13. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And here we are, all the way on the other side of the globe. Right. Let me get your attention by a few slides. Since I don't think you appreciate Acts 13, I don't think you appreciate Matthew 28, Acts 1, Psalm 68, like you should and like I should. So I want to try to get your attention. Can you see the center of that ring? There's a dot there. In 1977, our nation sent Voyager 1, a space probe, into space. It traveled at 40,000 miles per hour. 40,000 times 24 hours in a day is a million miles a day. 40 times around the Earth at the equator a day. That's how fast it went. In 1990, 13 years of a million miles a day, it was 4 billion miles from Earth. And it took this picture of Earth. In its camera, in this picture, there are 640,000 pixels. Earth is one-eighth of one pixel. Can you see it? It's called the pale blue dot. We are nothing you are nothing except a rebel against the Creator God. We are less than the dust of the balance, as the book of Isaiah tells us. You look at this picture, and some of the statements of Scripture are so true that we are nothing and less than nothing. Our Voyager was leaving our solar system. If you had taken this picture from another galaxy and had got both in your lens... 
the Voyager and Earth, the Voyager would be sitting on the Earth because it would be so close to it. The size of our universe, we're nothing. Your life, your hope, your dreams, your job, your promotions, your money, your houses, your yard, your cars, your toys, your everything you do is on that little speck of dust and it amounts to nothing. Right. Once you're dropped in the grave, no one's going to remember anything you did. Life is vain without our creator God revealing himself to us. What if our creator God had left us alone to our rebellions and insane imaginations before going to hell? What if he had left us alone? It seems right and fair to me that he should have done so, but he didn't. What is man that thou art mindful of him is a question that the psalmist wrote in Psalm 8, and the son of man that thou visitest him. Right. What is man? Why did God right. visit us? There's the pale blue dot again. We're nothing. Now here we are getting closer because God took an interest in that pale blue dot. Amen. David would say, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Because David was about to give a prophecy in Psalm 8 that was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his son for that little speck in our solar system called a pale blue dot. And here's called Earth Rising with a picture taken from the other side of the moon so that you can see the landscape of the moon in view along with the big blue dot. But it's not big. It's nothing. Right. I want you to look at that blue dot. The earth is 70% water. Here is Brazil on the South American continent. There is Africa. Here's Saudi Arabia. There's the Arabian Peninsula. There is Jerusalem. And there is Antioch. There's the Mediterranean Sea. There's Spain, France, the Straits of Gibraltar, Morocco, Algeria, Libya, and Egypt. God took an interest. God intervened and came down to this planet and sent his son. He descended. Do you know how far he had to descend? Are you with me about descending to the lowest parts of that blue speck of dust? Here's a close-up, closer up, of the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Here is the Sinai Peninsula. Jerusalem is right there. Antioch is about here. This is Cyprus. This is Crete. Sicily. Sardinia. Corsica. There's the boot of Italy. There's Athens right there. Here's the Dardanelles. Here's God's strait called Bosporus into the Black Sea. Paul came across into Europe for us with, Ma with Philippi and Apollonia and then Thessalonica, Berea, and then down to Athens, as we learned last Lord's Day. Here's the whole Mediterranean Sea with the Strait of Gibraltar over here. There's Cyprus. Here's the Arabian Peninsula. There's Jerusalem. Antioch is up here, Crete, and the boot of Italy is under the clouds. Let's zoom in closer because the Lord came a great deal closer. Jerusalem, Antioch, Cyprus, Pisidia, Cilicia, <coughs> Crete, Athens, Philippi. Thank you, Lord, for visiting earth. Amen. He should have and could have left us. And he did leave us for 4,000 years. And all you have to do is look at historical religion to see what we did when we were left to ourselves. <laughs> Lord, have mercy upon us. This is where we were last Lord's Day. There's the Dardanelles. The passage over from Asia to Europe. And Philippi is up in there. And then there was Apollonia and we got over to Thessalonica, Berea, and there's Athens down here that we ended up with in Acts chapter 17. There it is, if that helps you, with the Mediterranean Sea, the same picture that we saw from a satellite, and all those different places that we're going to read about in the Bible. God put all those places in the Bible. 
He wants you to know those places so that you can appreciate what happened when the Apostle Paul left this little tiny thing called Israel. That's all the bigger it was. Paul was way up here in Antioch of Syria, and he's going to go over here to Antioch of Pisidia. And we're going to read about it today. This is the map of his first preaching trip. I've blown it up for you so that you can see it, and we're going to leave it there for you to look at. I want you to notice that we're going to start right here. We're going to start right there with Antioch of Syria, north of Jerusalem by 300 miles. And we're going to go over to Antioch of Pisidia, two very different cities. And you ask, why were they both named Antioch? Why were there 15 Alexandrias in the world at the time? Because Alexander the Great liked naming towns after him, and some of them became big cities. Who were these towns named after? Antiochus I, the second, the third, the fourth, Antiochus Epiphanes, because that's Syria. That's the Seleucid Empire of the Greek generals that divided up Alexander's empire after his death. And so they named towns after themselves. The man that did it was named Seleucus, the general of Alexander's infantry. Seleucus, so he named a town 16 miles away from Antioch, Seleucia, and he named Antioch after a common name of the Greek kings, Antiochus. We're going to stay with that map. Do you know where we are? This is the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. This is the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem is out of sight. It's off the map to the bottom. Because Antioch is 300 miles north, we are going to open our Bibles and we are going to see a transaction and events take place by which God got the gospel to us. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. And he ascended up on high and he gave gifts to men and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now you may focus on your Bibles and your pastor. Acts chapter 13. Here's what I want to accomplish today with you. Our exposition of these two chapters will be very limited, lest we forget the main issue. What's the main issue? The main issue is not the history, the wars, the founders, the buildings, the architect the language, the geography, the transportation of any of these towns. I couldn't care less about any of those things, and I don't want you to care. The main lesson is God sent preachers for us, and they started with Paul for us Gentiles. We could give all kinds of this other information, and it's worthless trash. It just clutters up your mind. It's like a file drawer full of junk. It's like a hard drive you need to throw away and get a new one or purge its files. Our goal is to see God expanding his revelation to our kind. What's our kind? Gentiles. By Paul's preaching. We want to see how God prepared Paul, identified Paul, favored Paul, and protected Paul to preach the gospel. We want to study Paul's methods, Paul's power, Paul's content, and Paul's results by the blessings of the Holy Ghost. That's what we want to learn in Acts 13 and 14. It'll be very tempting to get waylaid by details in 80 verses that we need to cover to cover the first preaching trip of the Apostle Paul. Let's read the first three verses. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. The first thing we want to do is get, identify the Apostle Paul. He's Saul of Tarsus in this first verse. 
The Bible mentions Saul first in Acts chapter 7 when Saul held the coats of those that stoned Stephen. You're probably familiar with those last three or four verses of Acts 7. But look at the first three verses of Acts 8. Saul was not just an innocent bystander that happened to be holding some coats of the men that stoned Stephen. He was actively, viciously involved in the persecution of the church because look at the next verse, the first verse of chapter 8. And Saul was consenting unto his death. Saul approved of watching a man stoned to death who had the face of an angel and had just preached truth to them. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Notice this persecution, and the main driver behind it is Saul of Tarsus. And notice that the the gospel began in Jerusalem, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, but now we're already seeing believers spreading to Judea and to Samaria. Do you see that? Just like Jesus promised would happen by his power. And so Paul's persecution is serving a good result, and that is to get men out of Jerusalem and not be sitting around in the comfort of a 40,000-member church, but to get out and travel north, travel into Judea, travel into Samaria, which was north of Jerusalem, and they're going to end up in Antioch. Look at Acts chapter 9, and you know Acts 9. You should. And Saul, first verse yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues. Damascus was the capital of Samaria, farther north. And if he found any of this way, that is the Christian way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And you know what happens in this chapter. Paul is converted. And as soon as Paul gets some meat, gets his strength back, gets his eyesight back, is baptized, here's what he does in verse 20. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. There's Saul of Tarsus preaching Christ in Acts 9 and verse 20. And all that heard him were amazed. Verse 22, but Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. They tried to kill him. So he flees Damascus and comes down to Jerusalem and visits them in Jerusalem, which we can read about all the way through verse 31. And the brethren, because he was preaching boldly in Jerusalem, not only to full Jews, but to Hellenized Jews. Do you know what a Hellenized Jew is? It's a Grecian. It's a Jew born in other countries of Greece, had learned the Greek language, and was considered an oddball to the Jews that were born in Jerusalem. They're they're Grecians often in the Bible. A Grecian is not always a full-blown Gentile, but many times a Jew that grew up outside of Israel because of God's scattering of the nation for previous judgments. But Paul's preaching boldly, They try to slay him there in Jerusalem, so they send him to his hometown of Tarsus, which which is right here on the map. See, there's Tarsus. That's his hometown, Tarsus of Cilicia. He's going to say on trial throughout the book of Acts, I was born in, in not a mean city of Cilicia, meaning Tarsus was a pretty big, important city, and that his judges should consider where he was born. So that's in Acts chapter 9. He's in Tarsus. Acts chapter 11. You know what 10 is about, don't you? Acts 10 is about Cornelius. So we have Peter going to the Gentiles for the opening salvo, but then Paul's going to become the apostle to the Gentiles. So we come over to Acts chapter 11, and at verse 19. Now they which were scattered, all of 10, 
and the first 18 verses of 11 are all about Cornelius. The 18 verses in chapter 11 are Peter defending himself to the Jews in Jerusalem for having gone and preached and associated with Gentiles, our kind. Oh, he got in trouble for touching our kind. Verse 19, now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. Oh, Saul of Tarsus' persecution. They were scattered abroad, traveled as far as Phoenice, which is Phoenicia, which is the Mediterranean sea coast just south of this on, your, on this map, and Cyprus. Oh, we're going to need that. See, it says Cyprus. There were men that traveled as far as Cyprus because the Saul of Tarsus persecuting them drove them that far in their fleeing for safety. And Antioch, there it is, in Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. That would, mean, that would make them Grecians because they hadn't been born in Israel. They were men of Cyprus which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. So in Antioch, there's a great number of conversions taking place, and there's a lot of believers there, according to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. So the apostles in Jerusalem hear about this. Verse 25 they hear, well, it's in verses 22 through 24. The apostles hear about it. They send Barnabas to Tarsus to get Saul, and so the two of them can go to Antioch. And so we read that in verses 25 and 26 of Acts 11. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. I'm giving this is history. Right. Most of you didn't sleep when you were listening to junk that has no value. Most of you, I did. This is true history. This is real history. This is history that affects you and affects you in a good and a positive way. Rejoice in it. So we've got Paul and Barnabas in the city of Antioch as early as chapter 11, and they're there a year, and there's just widespread conversions taking place. So there is a big foundational church there being made up of Jews and Grecians, Hellenized Jews, and Paul's about to get the next step in, in preaching to full-blooded Gentiles like you and me. And so in verses 27 through 30, we are told about a prophecy of a famine that would affect Judea. And so the church at Antioch, Antioch was a very prosperous city, put some money together in a collection, and they sent it to Jerusalem by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. Chapter 12 is James being killed, Peter being in prison, and Herod being killed by the angel of the Lord. And we come to Acts chapter 13. But the Bible tells us in the last two verses of chapter 12, but the, word of the, but the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. What ministry? Delivering money, cash, 300 miles south from Antioch to Jerusalem. When they were done doing that, they went back north and they took a relative with them. And the relative's name was John Mark. He was Barnabas's nephew. And from that, we get the term nepotism. Nepotism means favoritism to a nephew. And so now there's three of them going back to Antioch. John Mark is not going to be mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 13 because he wasn't of note yet to mention as being of importance among the ministers that were in the church at Antioch. And so we're at Acts 13. Thank you, Lord, for this history book that you've given us in the book of Acts. Amen. We have read the first three verses. Now, there were in this church five elders, five prophets and teachers. And, though it doesn't say it, two of them at least were apostles, Paul and Barnabas. So we have these different gifts in the church because there is no New Testament. 
Do you think they ever had a sermon with slides from the book of Acts? No, Acts hadn't been written yet by Luke. They didn't have the New Testament epistles. So they had these different gifts that are called partial gifts in 1 Corinthians 13 to help them until the New Testament was completed. Then we have the perfect law of liberty and we don't need anything because the scriptures are able to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. All the partial gifts have disappeared because we have a written manual that tells us everything we need to know. You look at that city of Antioch there, and we're not going to study very much at all about it because we really don't care. What we care about, and you know, when you read commentaries, you've got to read through page after page after page of all the historical junk, military junk, namings, generations there, streets, agri agriculture, businesses, shipping, trading, on and on it goes, and none of it matters. And so I don't, I don't care about any of that stuff, and so I'm not going to burden you with that stuff. We want to look at the church and pick up what's important. They had five preachers, and what were those preachers doing? They were ministering to the Lord, fulfilling their ministries, and they were fasting and praying. And when they were fasting and praying, the Holy Ghost said to them, because the Holy Ghost was dealing directly with men by visions, by dreams, and words of wisdom, words of knowledge, and the other gifts that you can read about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and said, give me Saul and Barnabas. And so the ministers said, you've got them. And they prayed and fasted again and laid hands on them and sent those two out to go wherever the Holy Ghost would lead them. And so these two men left the, the uh, city of Antioch after further praying and fasting, which is in verse 3, and the other ministers there laying their hands on them, they sent them away. And we come to verse 4. So they, the two of them, Barnabas and Saul, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. Now I thought it was the ministers that sent them forth. Well, when it's the ministers doing what the Holy Ghost said to do, it can be called the ministers sending them forth and the Holy Ghost sending them forth. Because both were in agreement together. Departed unto Seleucia. 16 miles away to get to the coast where they could get a ship and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So if you're looking at the blue arrow on the map that is displayed on both sides of me, you can see the hometown church of Paul and Barnabas named Antioch of Syria. And they went 16 miles to Seleucia, got a ship, and went 150 miles over to Salamis on the island of Cyprus. Now, who was from Cyprus? between Barnabas was from Cyprus. Paul was from Cilicia. So these two men were not like the apostles that were in Jerusalem. The apostles in Jerusalem were, they hailed from a long ways away, 70 miles north, the Sea of Galilee. They were Jews of Jews. They were Galileans, backwoods Jews, but they were still in the nation of Israel. These two men are perfectly prepared by the Lord to be in the church at Antioch and to go to Cyprus and to preach in the regions around Cilicia because they were from those regions. They would have known them. They would have had a connection with the people that they encountered. And so they depart for Cyprus and they land there in Cyprus. Now in verse 5, it tells us their methods. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. So the three of them are working together. Barnabas had picked up John Mark in Jerusalem and brought him north to Antioch. John Mark was the son of Mary, who was the sister of Barnabas, who in Acts chapter 12, the prayer meeting for Peter was in the house of Mary. And so you're, these people are tied together. The, the principal people in the book of Acts are only a few right. that are mentioned. And so John Mark is with them. Notice the method. They go into the synagogues of the Jews. The gospel was to go first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and the apostles did that by going first of all to the Jews into synagogues. Paul did not preach in jails or on street corners like modern soul winners do. He didn't go to a football game and hold up a placard for John 3.16 in the end zone. 
He didn't do anything like that. And I want to say something else. We just sang a song about, getting, about telling the old, old story of Jesus and his love. It's actually a pretty new story. Because in the book of Acts, in all 28 chapters, and all 13 forms of the verb to love, there is not a single occurrence in the book of Acts. The apostles did not preach the love of Jesus. The apostles did not preach the love of God. Do you remember from last Sunday what they preached? Ignorance, creation, providence, knowability, repentance, judgment, Christ's resurrection. Remember that? Nothing about the love of God. Nothing about heaven. I mocked preaching about heaven last Lord's Day. Everybody wants to go to heaven. If we were to go outside right now and travel downtown Greenville and solicit people on the streets, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And we would count that as a convert. We would come back and have converted Greenville County. Everybody wants to go to heaven. But that's not what the apostles preached. They went into the synagogues, opened the scriptures, which would have only been the Old Testament, taken those prophecies of a Messiah and said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, as we're going to find as he preached in Antioch of Pisidia. Same method, over and over. Go into a synagogue. What is in a synagogue? People that already fear Jehovah. Jews and Gentile proselytes. They already fear Jehovah and believe in Jehovah. They just don't know that the prophecies about a Messiah have been fulfilled. And so Paul's going to explain that to them. Paul endured all things evangelistically for the elect's sakes. Do you know that verse from 2 Timothy 2.10? I endure all things for the elect's sakes. 2 Timothy 2.10. Hey, quizzers, did some of you learn 2 Timothy 2? Verse 10. Paul endured all things for the elect's sakes. He wasn't looking for reprobates. He wasn't offering salvation to everyone. He was looking for the elect. And if you went into a town, where would the elect be? In a brothel? That's a whorehouse, if you didn't know what the word meant, while I'm trying to be discreet. A brothel. Would he go to the mall? Would he pass out tracks at a gas station? Would he go to a football game? What did he do? He went to where people worshipped Jehovah and read the Bible. And he showed them how to understand their Bible, that it told them about Jesus Christ. And that's in verse 5. Verse 6. And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, when they had walked a hundred miles on this island of Cyprus to get to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the sorcerer, for so was his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, and from now on you will not find Saul of Tarsus or Saul, but he now has his Roman name, Paul. Why have a Hebrew name if you're going to preach to Gentiles of Saul when you can be given a Roman name of Paul. And so he becomes known as Paul right there in the ninth verse, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. Here's the apostle Paul looking at this false prophet, this sorcerer, and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, Wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord." Amen. This is what they did in the island of Cyprus. They went into the first city of Salamis, went into the synagogues, plural, in that vicinity. Synagogues were small, where the Jews met, 
and preached Jesus Christ to them. Traveled the length of the island of Cyprus. It's right there in the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. These are transcendent events of the gospel coming to you, or you would have never heard. The Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those that published it, and Paul was the greatest of the company. Because he brought it to us Gentiles, and he labored more abundantly than they all, and we should be very thankful for the Apostle Paul and God's use of him to spread the gospel of his dear son. And so they come to Paphos, and they run into this sorcerer, which we just read about in verses 6 down through 12. This sorcerer's name was Bar-Jesus. When we read Simon Bar-Jonah, what does that mean? Son of Jonah. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. Jesus, before it comes through Greek into English, is Joshua, son of Joshua, a very common name among the Hebrews. But he's a sorcerer, and he's with the Roman-appointed deputy of the country of Cyprus whose Latin name is obvious, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man. He called for Barnabas and Saul. He wanted to hear the gospel. The Lord's prepared a man. It's the power. I'll give you power for you to preach and do miracles, and I'll be working some power, opening the heart of Lydia and causing this Roman deputy to want to hear the gospel. The man has been using this sorcerer, but now he wants to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Elamas, the sorcerer, for so was his name by interpretation, meaning the enlightened one, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. So we have Paul and Barnabas, John Mark over to the side, but we have Paul and Barnabas being confronted by this false prophet who's operating under the power of the devil. I thought that the Holy Spirit had sent forth Paul and Barnabas. Why are they running into opposition if they have a calling to do something for the Lord? Oh, brethren, we have a war to fight. And when he calls us to go, he's not calling us to go on vacation. He's calling on us to go to war, especially ministers of the gospel. They have a war to fight. And so Paul and Barnabas are running into their first opposition. But do you see anyone forfeiting? Do you see anyone throwing up a white flag? Are there any jaded apostles here? Are there any apostles working against a drag coefficient? Just come, come on, brethren. I love every one of you. Some of you don't know what I just said, but some of you do. Look at these men. Now I want you to ask, a, I want you to answer this question. If Joel Osteen had been on this trip, would he have handled Bar-Jesus the same way? Let me read it again. Then Saul, in verse 9, who also is called Paul, and so we'll call him Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him. He stared at that man and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord because that's what he'd been doing as a false prophet in Cyprus. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And it tells us that the deputy believed because he was astonished at the doctrine of Paul. What was Paul's doctrine? You're a child of the devil, be blind for a while. And the ability to make it happen right then on the spot, that is glorious doctrine. That's not the love of Jesus, and heaven has golden streets that you can chip a few bricks from and take home and put in the bank. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. Bold, confident preaching. You have been resisting the Lord Jesus Christ, and now his hand is upon you, and see what, if, what he's going to do. He blinds the one that was known as enlightened. That's what, why, did, why does the Holy Spirit want to tell us that he had Bar-Jesus as his Jewish name and Elamas as a Greek name, the enlightened one, because he was just made dark by the gospel that brought light to us. I love the Bible. I'm sorry. I love every single word of it. Amen. These events resulted in us being here today. We are here today 
because the Lord gave the word and great was the company of those that published it. The deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Do you remember when Jesus Christ got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount? The last two verses in Matthew chapter 7 say that the people were astonished because he spake as one having power, authority, and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Paul is just like Jesus. When, when Jesus preached, he tore the Pharisees apart. Every five verses is tearing the Pharisees apart one different way. By the time he was done, they were scattered fragments. And the people were astonished at the authority of the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so were they with the Apostle Paul. Verse 13, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga. So look at, you, look at the map. They had to take sailing again. They didn't walk on water. They took sailing again from the island of Cyprus straight north to Perga of Pamphylia. And it tells us that right here, 1313. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. John went AWOL. John Mark went AWOL. Barnabas' nephew went AWOL. And that'll come up again, not on this trip, but in the, in the future, in Acts chapter 15, before Paul and Barnabas were going to make trip number two, there was a sharp contention between the two of them over this AWOL helper. And so Paul went one way and Barnabas went another way, and you don't read anything about Barnabas again, even though he went as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And, and the limited 28 chapters that we have in the book of Acts deal with our apostle to the Gentiles, Paul. So we've come to verse 14. And these verses are some of the precious verses of the Bible about how God prepared audiences and gave Paul an opportunity to preach. Look at verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, it doesn't tell us anything about Perga. They arrived at Perga. You can see that it's near the coast. And then they went north through Pisidia to another town called Antioch. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Again, their method. We are told the method of spreading the gospel is to go to those that give us the best indication that they already fear God and are open to truth. These are people that are already worshiping Jehovah, a monotheistic religion, meaning one God, instead of a polytheistic religion of many gods, and they're using the Old Testament scriptures, which is all they had at that time. So this is Paul's method, and we're going to see this method over and over and over. He does not do what so many do. Paul did not have a jail ministry like so many have. If you go online and look up jail ministries, you can find all kind of jail ministries. Paul never had a jail ministry unless he was locked up in that jail. Right. Then he had a ministry. And that's a big difference. The jail ministries I've been part of in the past, oh, I wasn't locked up. I was walking free. But Paul, when he had a jail ministry like Acts 16, he's in the innermost prison. Let's remember that. This is so beautiful. He goes in the synagogue and he sits, he sits down. He doesn't go in there and cause any trouble. He just sits down with Barnabas beside him. The two of them are listening to the scriptures being read. They're rejoicing. They're elbowing each other a little bit. They're just enjoying it. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, a messenger came down and ran back to the back row where Paul and Barnabas were sitting, and asked them, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. If you men have anything you'd like to say about the scriptures, you're welcome to get, take the pulpit for a little while. Is, is that perfect? When you read that, do you smile? Yeah. Or is the Bible boring to you? When you read this, you should grin from ear to ear. Paul said, young man, lock the back door. Barnabas, hand me my briefcase. Except Paul didn't need a briefcase. Right. Oh, no, Paul didn't need a briefcase. 
Paul had the perfect hard drive and briefcase upstairs under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost as the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to Gentiles. He follows this method. He is going to use seven verses for common prophecy that they would agree on. For seven verses, they're going to be shouting amen. Then he has another seven verses where he introduces Jesus by prophecy. Then he has another eight verses where he explains the resurrection was a fact and had been prophesied. Then he calls for their faith in the last four verses, and that will take us to verse 41, and let's do it the next seven minutes because I just used seven so many times. Now that means we're going to have to skate over wonderful material that's been preached before. So if you think I'm cheating you, I'll just send you a link when you email me and tell me you cheated me by not giving me the details of that sermon. I'll send you a link, then we're all square, okay? But right now, we want to skate over the surface and just rejoice in his method. Common history, introduce Jesus, prove the resurrection, call on them for faith. Okay, here we go. Oh, I love this. Verse 16, then Paul stood up, and I may stop here and there because I won't be able to keep going till the end of the section. But this section runs from verse 16 down through 22. Then Paul stood up. And beckoning with his hand, men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. What does he mean by those that fear God? I remember when I was first converted, every, every verse I read in the Bible, I wanted to find unconverted elect. Every verse in the Bible. And I was pretty good at it. I could get him into Genesis 1. I can't remember how, but I tried. All this is saying is, men of Israel. Now, do you know who they might be? Jews from Israel. And ye, men that fear, brethren that fear God, are Grecians, or Greek Gentile proselytes. Right. They're men that fear God. They've been converted. That's why they're in the synagogue. They've been converted to be like a Jew. So don't read more into it than is there. And the first, same words will come up in verse 26 when it says there again, as Paul re appeals to his audience again, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, I'm speaking to those descendants of Abraham and some Gentiles that have come in and converted to join them. Verse 16, Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. Notice the commonality that he makes. When you're speaking with someone, can you find what you agree on before you have to find what you disagree about? It's so, there's so much wisdom in the Word of God. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an high arm brought he them out of it. Amen! And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Amen. The audience would have been shouting amen because he found common ground with them to start off with. He refers to our fathers and he refers to history. Do you know how many hundreds of years he covered so quickly all the way to David from mentioning Abraham? and their fathers, and coming into the land of Egypt. He talks about God's high arm bringing them out of Egypt, things that they would have rejoiced to have heard. And we could deal with these verses at length, but they have been before. Just remember that the New Testament is superior to the Old Testament right. by its added revelation. Amen. It tells us here 
that Saul was king of Israel 40 years. So that in the Babel of 1 Samuel 13.1, where all modern translations do not know how long Saul was king, and they say one year, two years, 22 years, 32 years, or 42 years are the five choices they make. We know those Bible versions are wrong because of reading Acts 13. But that is not for now. Right now, we just want to rejoice in Paul's method of how he's going to get the gospel to us. He starts off with common history that they would agree on. Verse 23, the next section is going to run through verse 29. He's going to introduce Jesus. He introduces David, and that God found David to be uniquely special to him, a man after his own heart that would fulfill all his will. Well, all his will included the Messiah. Verse 23, this, you, you could have heard a pin drop in this place. There were, there were shoutings of amen. Now you could hear a pin drop. Uh, embrace the history of this man's seed. All the prophecies that David would have a son that would sit on his throne forever would be in the minds of that audience. Of this man's seed, of this man's seed, Jesus, the son of David, of this man's seed, hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Amen. When John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Do you see the wisdom of Paul's, what Paul's prosecuting here? How Paul brings up John the Baptist, who is well known among all the Jews, that John the Baptist said he was not the important one, he was not the Messiah, but there was one coming after him. Paul is gently leading his audience along with historical facts of the ministry of John the Baptist. Men and brethren, can, can you feel the apostles' desire for their souls by appealing to them again? Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. You have never heard about salvation like I'm about to tell you. You have never heard about the one that John the Baptist came before and explained. Will you hear me now as I tell you about salvation? Verse 27, For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. He's appealing to this, to this crowd in Antioch of Pisidia to be different than the Jews in Jerusalem by taking heed to what the scriptures actually say about David's son. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. They would have known this history. John the Baptist had preceded a man called Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified by the Jewish elders in the city of Jerusalem and put in the grave. They would have known to that, that, to that point. They probably wouldn't have said amen just listening because Paul has already introduced in verse 23 that the son of David is Jesus. But he leads up to a problem. He's dead in the ground. Is there a solution to the problem? It's an inspired disjunctive in the next verse. We love the word but in the Bible. We love the inspired buts in the Bible. And so verse 30 but God raised him from the dead. Amen. This would have been shocking news. But God raised him from the dead. Now they're listening. Where in the world is this madman going to go? God raised him from the dead? How are you going to prove that? Watch. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee, up, even though it was south, 
is up from sea level to the mountains of Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. There are men that saw Jesus alive. He doesn't appeal to scripture first. He appeals to historical fact that there are eyewitnesses that saw Jesus after God raised him from the dead. And we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children. Those Old Testament promises are fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David. He was seen alive. There are witnesses that saw him after God raised him from the dead. These are glad tidings I'm sharing with you, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham. And whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. No one has heard it outside the borders of Israel until now. And he's way in the middle of Turkey, modern Turkey. This should be glorious to you. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word. That's verse 48. We'll get there in time. But right now, we're at verse 32. We declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children. Now he starts quoting scripture. In that, he hath raised up Jesus again. He raised Jesus up from the dead. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Psalm 2-7. That glorious psalm about the king of God on Zion's hill. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. This is the decree. This is my son. The formal pronouncement to the universe that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God took place after his resurrection. It, Psalm 2 is after his resurrection. It's when Jesus was put on the holy hill of Zion. Jesus wasn't king when he was on earth. Tell me some of his kingly duties. What did he do as a king when he was on earth? In the full sense of the word of being king over the universe. That took place after his resurrection, and it's from Psalm 2-7. And you say, I wish you'd spend another 30 minutes on Psalm 2 Two seven. I'll spend an hour. Send me your email again, and I'll send you a link. It's been covered in slides on a Wednesday night. Slides about Psalm 2-7 and how this passage tells us that those words are fulfilled at his resurrection and ascension into heaven, which is contrary to your intuitive thought. Intuitive thought is this. This is my son. This day have I begotten thee. That must be the virgin birth. Now everyone else says... That's God talking to his little boy in eternity when he, by eternal generation, generated the divine nature of Jesus. That's what they do with it. But for you, you might think that it's his incarnation in Mary, but it's not. It's when he put his son on the holy hill of Zion as king over the universe. Hebrews 1 says the same thing, that he by inheritance hath gotten a name above every angel. By inheritance, not by birth. By inheritance, in Hebrews 1. What name did Jesus get by inheritance over all the angels according to Hebrews 1? Thou art my son. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son. He never said that to an angel. Paul is using Psalm 2, 7 first in verse 33. Verse 34, And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And so he quotes from Isaiah 55, the sure mercies of David. Verse 35, wherefore, he also saith in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, what Peter used in the day of Pentecost, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid into his fathers and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. So there, all the way through verse 37, beginning at verse 30, 30 through 37, eight verses, he explains the resurrection. You know about John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth, how he was crucified by our, by our brethren in Jerusalem. But God raised him from the dead. And we know that he raised him from the dead because we've seen him alive and there's a whole bunch of witnesses that saw him alive. And here are three scriptures to prove that God would raise him from the dead. Not to see corruption. 
Thou wilt not leave my soul in the grave. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Psalm 16, 9 and 10. These are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth that I preach unto you. Men and brethren, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Verse 38, be it known unto you. Therefore, look at his conclusion. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. All the things that you are going through, trying to hear the Old Testament scriptures, the Levitical law, the laws of Moses, all the animal sacrifices, and thinking that your righteousness is going to stand in those efforts, I tell you, God's forgiven you through the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. This is what Paul wanted to do with every Jew that would give him an audience. When he said in Romans chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness which is of God, which is through Christ Jesus the Lord. And so he's doing it right here. Be it known unto you. To you is the word of this salvation sent. Do you understand they had never heard anything like this in their lives? And they're hearing the gospel for the first time. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses can't help you, and you all know that. That's why you have to keep offering the sacrifices year after year. Beware. Therefore, beware, therefore, God has visited you with his son. God has brought the word of this salvation to you. God has brought forgiveness of sins through his son. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you, which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. The Apostle Paul was the man. The Apostle Paul was declaring the gospel to these Jews. But the prophecy had already been given that most of the Jews would not believe it and would be destroyed. And if they did not take care, and if they were not made aware, and, if they, and they were told to beware, they would lose that message. And God would turn from them and judge them. And so Paul wraps up his first recorded sermon in the Bible, right here in Acts chapter 13 with verse 41. And when we come back from our break, we'll take up the response to that sermon, which was wonderful. And then a few other cities that he visits and he makes his way back to Antioch. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.